Thank you. Oh, good morning. As Ryan said, my name is George. It is good to be with you. It is a little bit of a surreal day. Um, this place has been such a big part of my story, and I'm excited to share with you about uh, why I'm transitioning and, and what's next. Right before Christmas, uh, I notified Ryan and our leadership team that my wife and I had come to the difficult but necessary decision that it was time for me to step aside as the executive pastor and, and move on to what's next. Uh, if you're a guest today, I just want to say welcome. I'm glad you're here. Like Ryan said, um, you, did, you picked a good day to be here. And who cares about the Super Bowl? We'll get there. It's fine. It's not even that exciting of a game. But um, as I prepared for this talk, it really hit home uh, how much this place means to me. I mean, I knew that, but when you sit down and you actually get ready to, to get up here and you imagine yourself you know, standing in front of hundreds of people and sharing a little bit about your journey, it's, it's overwhelming. Uh, Friday night, I had 29 pages of content, which Ryan tells me is, is the new record, so yay, I did it. Uh, but don't worry, I got it down to about five, and then I'm going to get you out of here on time. But one of the big realizations as I've reflected on my journey uh, has been that this is the place that I fell in love. This is the place that uh, my wife and I first discovered together. This is our church. And so sort of with Valentine's Day around the corner, what better way to give a gift to my wife than to share a little bit of our story uh, with you. So I was 19 years old and I landed this sweet gig at a title and escrow company as a receptionist answering phones. Um, I was 19. It's first, like my first step into the real world with like adults and stuff. And uh, Danielle walks in and she was looking good that day, guys. She had it going on. She had like this uh, Louis Vuitton bag Blonde hair, like, she, I mean, it was love at first sight for me. She didn't, she didn't notice me at all, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, I was, she was 23, I was 19, and I immediately assumed that that age difference was just going to be unrealistic and that she was out of my league, and so uh, it actually, she required, she was required, that she asked me out for the first time, uh, which I wish I could brag about that, but it was actually more uh, due to the fact that I have no game, and... <laughs> But I did find my game on our first date. I was 19 years old, and I swear to God, this is what I said. Uh, listen, I'm not looking for a girlfriend. I'm looking for a wife. <laughs> 19 years old, first date, just ready to close the deal. And <laughs> from, from that point on, I mean, spoiler alert, it kind of worked. Um, I'm, we're now married. We're celebrating 10 years uh, in June. But uh, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, after that first date, uh, six months later, tragically, we, uh, we broke up in pretty dramatic fashion. And uh, it, was, it was the hardest 24 hours <laughs> of my life, actually. Um, but one of the things, so we were both you know, Christian kids, grew up in the church. And one of the things about our breakup, when, when we decided, hey, we're, we're in this for the long haul, we want to see uh, if we're going to get married. Uh, and what's really important to us is we want to find a church community that we can call our own. Um, at the time, I had been going to Mill Creek Foursquare. I'd been there for about nine years, and I was really plugged in. But it was really my church. It was hard to, to bring in someone new and have it feel like it was ours. And so I really wanted to, to be with Danielle, and uh, we set out to sort of find a church that we could call ours. And it was actually Danielle's parents who introduced us to this weirdo church called Eastlake in Kirkland, because the, they lived right up the street from Kirkland Junior High. Uh, and it was, there's kind of like these rumors going around. There's this young, hip, like really emotional pastor named Ryan Meeks uh, who's got this ragtag crew and they're like in a trailer setting up church and then tearing it down like a traveling circus. And it was just the weirdest thing. I mean, growing up, I grew up in the Coptic Orthodox Church and we're like known for like really nice, huge buildings and stuff. So I'm like, 
I got to see this. What is this all about? They're just like, it's in a trailer. They fit everything in there. And so it really didn't take long. After our first week, we didn't, we didn't look at any other churches. Uh, we, found, uh, we found a home here, and we never really looked back. These were our people. Danielle and I just felt like this is our place. We jumped right in. We served in the walkers room uh, every week, pretty much. I was a part of the production team here. I did the stage managing. I had the high honor of bringing Ryan his coffee every week for a season. <laughs> uh, we basically grew up in this church. I mean, I was 20 when we got here. Danielle was 24, and obviously we've been here ever since. And actually, it was Pastor Ryan at the time to us, uh, who was the officiant at our wedding. He was a hired hand. I had to pay him. Actually, we didn't do it like as a friendly favor because I didn't know him that well. He was just kind of my pastor. But uh, one story from, from our wedding, as it was getting time to take communion, you know, it's a serious moment, and he's getting ready to hand us the elements. And I got a couple pictures here, but uh, <laughs> I was so nervous that instead of just, you know, taking a little sip of the wine, like a normal person does, I just pounded the entire thing. <laughs> And uh, as everyone laughed, like you guys are, I, I kind of slowly realized, oh, whoops, like I just, I just did that. <laughs> My wife was really excited. It was awesome. But the best part <laughs> was when Ryan leans over to me and, and he, uh, Danielle's got her full glass still and he points at her glass and he's like, hey, you want to polish that one off too, bro? <laughs> uh, but our lives were really shaped at this church. Um, by all the incredible teachers that I've gotten to learn from. I, I just think about the times uh, that Ryan has, you know, shared this stage with a plurality of voices. I've learned from guys like Dave Nelson, uh, Jeremy Johnson. One of my favorite speakers coming to this church growing up was Ryan's dad, Mike Meeks. Uh, Rick Enlow was a frequent guest. But I remember Danielle and I talking er in the early days about how unique it was that there would be more than just one person that you heard from. It was, it was this thing that's always been in our DNA, and, and it's actually really uncommon. It's still quite uncommon, but it's been a critical part of this place's fabric from the very beginning. This place has always been authentic. I think that's the number one word that people use to describe Eastlake. This place is real, and uh, that's always been as a direct result of Ryan's leadership. I look up to Ryan quite a bit um, for his courage and his genuine leadership. I've already done my fair share of crying, by the way. I, I notified them in December, so I got like a month behind me. There is a lot of pressure, though, when you're up here to cry, I feel like. I think Ryan sets the, the standard for that. Um, but I really do believe that uh, Ryan, Ryan saved me from myself. Ryan's taught me, I think the, the biggest lesson Ryan's taught me is to, to find my own truth, to find my own voice, which is weird for someone who is your boss, right? It's, it's not this coercive type of leadership where his opinion is the way that it goes. He's never been like that. He's always appreciated that dialogue and debate and alternative perspectives. Um, and as the executive pastor, he, he's the lead pastor, uh, him and I would always just go to battle and we'd always argue, we'd always, uh, this was kind of sport for us. And uh, sometimes, you know, the rest of the management team would get a little bit worried, like, hey, you guys been going at it for like a day and a half now, is everything okay? I think it was David Lunsford one time, and it was like, mom and dad are fighting again. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of the vibe, that was just a bit, sorry. Um, so most of you have heard by now about the backlash that we've experienced as a staff uh, team here since uh, our statement of full inclusion for the LGBTQ community two years ago. And uh, these past two years, I've really been trying more and more to press into this pain, how it's been impacting me personally. Uh, beyond, you know, like the surface level hurt of like people leaving the church or losing a bunch of money or people calling you a heretic online, that stuff doesn't really bother me anymore. I've kind of, it's been two years, I've kind of gotten over it. But what I've been noticing is that there are these triggers 
with every wave of, of criticism or backlash, which, which bring back similar sentiments for me that were often triggered throughout my life. Anytime that I was made to feel different or inferior or an outcast or that I don't belong or that I'm not welcome, uh, all these, these, these memories keep coming back. Now, for those of you who don't know, I was born in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, I'm an immigrant. I was four years old when my family moved here. Um, and one of the things about me, when I was eight or nine probably, I really wanted to be president, like of the United States. And uh, this was like a goal of mine. I wanted to like get into politics and run for president. And I was like convinced, I was making plans, I'm gonna be in the Oval Office, this is what I'm gonna do. Um, and I think one of my early disappointments was when my parents told me that actually you're not gonna be president because you're not eligible, you weren't born here. And uh, that might sound silly to you, like, okay, but like, you're really going to be president. But I've never really understood this idea of dismissing something as unrealistic, you know, before it actually became unrealistic. I was like, as far as the way I saw it was, someone's got to be president. I guess I'll, I, mean, I could give it a shot. Uh, it was nothing more than that. I was just like, this is a new opportunity, right? Uh, but when I talk about these triggers and these waves of feeling like an outcast or second class, uh, recently the... Uh, birther conspiracy or controversy was, was an example of this. You'll remember this. There's basically two conversations, right? Either uh, President Obama was not born here, he's not eligible, or he was born in Hawaii. This is ridiculous. Obviously, that's the, that's the part that prevailed. But for me, I was kind of observing this conversation, and my perspective was, wait, I'm sorry, why are we talking about this? Why do we care where he was born again? He seems to be doing a pretty good job. I mean, we have like a deficiency of leadership. I think we should, I don't know, maybe let's see how he does. But I understand it's, it's a rule, right? So for me, the way that it would work is like I would say run for president and then someone would bring up the whole like um, where, have you, where were you born thing and then uh, I'd show them my birth certificate and they'd be like, I, I can't read that. Um, and uh, you definitely can't run, right? So there wouldn't be much of a controversy. It would be, it would be over. But it's always felt like I've had a little bit of an asterisk on my passport, even after becoming a citizen. Um, and this asterisk was the result of something that I didn't decide. And I didn't decide where I was going to be born, right? But these reflections, the more that I've pressed into my story, has helped me develop uh, this, a deeper level of empathy, I think, for the LGBT community uh, and how the church often makes them feel. It's made me more aware of racial and gender divides within our churches, within our country, and really just the culture at large. My eyes have slowly been opening to my own story. And I remembered one of my favorite Bible verses, uh, you know, when I, when I was an immigrant and I came here and I looked around, I was like, man, there's, this is amazing. There's so much opportunity here. And this is a big deal. The magnitude of my parents sacrificing and bringing us over here was a big deal. Uh, Luke 12, 48 was the verse. Uh, it says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And that's always sort of rang true in me. Like, remember, to whom much is given, much is expected. I've carried it with me ever since. Um, and what I've been given, what we've all been given, is, is our story and, and a sense of responsibility to share it. Uh, in this, this past uh, Christmas, uh, my buddy Jeff, who's become a really good friend, he's a neighbor of mine, he, uh, he, me and him are totally different, right? He's a white dude, truck driver, blue collar, right? I'm an Egyptian immigrant, but me and him get along like really, really well. We love having conversations and just uh, debating on different things, and uh, we always have a lot of fun together. And he sort of adopted me into his family, and he invites me into like, like family functions and stuff, and I just always stand out like a sore thumb. So, I, and I love going into these environments where I know I'm gonna be pushed out of my comfort zone, and I'm gonna have some fascinating conversations. And so uh, he invited me to a family Christmas party, 
And uh, we, were, we were hanging out, and sure enough, I stand out like a sore thumb, but I'm having these great conversations with a bunch of new friends. There's a group of people uh, with me, and I kind of see out of the corner of my eye, probably this 55-year-old, like a tall, bigger, white guy who's drunk, stumbling over towards me. I'm wearing a beanie. It's cold, right? It's December. And uh, he interrupts my conversation that we're having, and he yells, like confronts me, and says, why don't you take that hat off? You look like a terrorist. And uh, he used some other choice language that I'm not going to repeat because this is church, Ryan. <laughs> Heard you last week. <laughs> but it was, it was a really interesting interaction because it was clear to me that this guy saw me as sort of the representative of the other to him. I don't know how many other interactions he's had with people that look like me, but uh, he was saying things like, why can't we just have peace? Right? And, you know, I handled my own. I know how to kind of deal with, with these situations. And I kind of tried to diffuse it and, like, play along, ha-ha, you know. But he kept coming at me. He kept coming at me. We take the hat off. You look like a terrorist, right? And, um, you know, finally I took the hat off and I looked at him and I was like, there, is that better? And he goes, no, you still look like a terrorist. <laughs> and I'm like, so I put the hat back on, like, snugly on my head. And I just fired back with a smile and I go, why can't we just have peace, man? And trying to use his own words against him. But I remember feeling in that moment that the thing that I wish would have happened was that I wish someone would have said something. Because as a minority in that situation, it doesn't, it's not really helpful for me to say, excuse me, sir, this is unacceptable. That doesn't really go that far, right? And um, while I did handle my own, and it was fine, I actually had a pretty good conversation with him. I, I enjoy those interactions where I'm like trying to get to the heart of like, where, where's this guy's wounding? What's his story? Um, I try not to, like, read too much into it. You know, I think he's just as uncomfortable as I am, especially because I'm not, I think he's trying to in intimidate me. And, and the longer you stay in the room, the more fascinating the conversation gets. But I wanted him to be corrected. Not just for his sake. I wanted everyone within earshot who was observing this to see this is unacceptable. This isn't how we talk to people. But the more interesting lesson for me, as I've reflected more and more, has been realizing that as people of color, we actually don't often make these expectations and desires clear to our white friends and allies. We'd rather insist on absorb, absorbing the hurt ourselves and assuming that they know that we're hurting. So I've been thinking about this, like how would anyone know? I mean, I barely knew. I had to sit there and reflect on why I was feeling this way, right? And so I talked to my friend Jeff because this is the kind of conversations that we have, super uncomfortable ones where I'm crying and I'm telling him, Listen, man, next time we're in a situation like that, like, I really need you to stand up and for me and say something. Not even for the sake of the guy, but for the sake of everyone in the room. Jeff felt bad. Uh, he apologized. He's such a great guy. We ended up having an amazing conversation. I think our friendship is actually a lot stronger as a result. Uh, he told me he had no idea how to respond. In fact, he, like, showed up late to the interaction, so he missed, like, the whole first part of it. And he showed up, and I'm engaging, and it looks like I'm, like, I'm laughing, right? So... So first of all, one thing to realize is that I had a different understanding of what you know, his participation or his uh, perspective was. Uh, but also he was just like, I didn't know if you wanted me to jump in. It's like, I've been with you before where you're having these conversations, you're doing your pastor thing, and I didn't want to interrupt that. So I reassured him I wasn't upset, and I acknowledged that I can't expect him to know how to respond to those situations without first clarifying uh, through loving conversation that, that we were having. So here's the big idea. I think we need to do a better job of acknowledging our differences for the sake of unity. For me, this means that I carry a great sense of responsibility to make sure that you know 
I'm an Egyptian immigrant, as often as possible, especially when I'm given a platform. I feel an obligation to my heritage and to many people who look like me who won't have a voice or won't have an opportunity to address so many influential people. It is a huge responsibility, and it takes me back to Luke 12, 48, that this is expected of me a lot. Uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. And what I've been given is my story and this opportunity to share. And so I feel proud and honored, honestly, when I get to represent people of color and uh, share my story in order to convey at least a small, tiny part of the struggle. Because I'd venture to guess that many of us don't know many people from the Middle East. Um, but in order for me to do this, uh, it requires me to continually set aside the, pri the privilege that I do have in order to more closely identify with my story. But this all goes back to why I love this place so much. And what I want to highlight, in case you think this is common, is that what we're experiencing at Eastlake is the renewal of all things. You see, Ryan doesn't have to let me speak. He doesn't have to let Jason speak, who's half black. He doesn't have to let Kristen speak, who's a woman, obviously. He doesn't have to share the stage with anyone, in fact. He's actively laying down his power in order to promote views and experiences and perspectives that are different than his, same as he's always done. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a rare thing. We need more of this. It's one of the things that makes this place so special. Friends, if we want to expand our perspective and diversity, we must listen to and elevate voices that are different than ours. Guys, ever since the election, I've noticed white people more. And that may sound silly, but I'm being serious. My first observation is that there is a lot of you. I don't know if you've noticed this. Uh, my second observation is that there's a lot of white people right now who seem to be trying their best to communicate that they are safe. And whatever's going on as far as racial tensions, they don't support. They're not a part of that. I think this is actually true of many people who, who voted for Trump, even. They're decent people, and they're being falsely labeled. They're being generalized. For the first time that I can remember, uh, many white people seem to be carrying a burden now that I never noticed before. And I want to acknowledge that I have no idea what that's like. But I am curious. I want to learn. I bet it's a new feeling, and I want help in understanding what it's like. Can we cultivate a genuine curiosity about each other, perhaps by first acknowledging that we are different? When did our differences become a bad thing that we should hide or not talk about or not acknowledge? What happened to the aspiration of a melting pot? where we learn to thrive because of our uniqueness, because of our gifts, because of our backgrounds and the unique contributions that we can make because of our perspectives. I want to stop treating people as if they were there at like this meeting that took place when it was decided that they were going to be born, right? Like they made these decisions, that they had a vote and where they would be and what religion they'd be a part of and how much money their family would have. They didn't decide these things. Why do we treat people as if it was up to them? If we don't embrace this idea, that our differences actually matter, that they're an important thing to acknowledge. Here's what I'm afraid of. I believe that people of color and marginalized groups will slowly realize that the so-called gospel, this good news that we're preaching in our churches, is no longer for them. We're seeing this more and more, especially right now, where marginalized people are, are leaving the church in droves. Jesus was always interested in the poor, the marginalized, the people on the edges of society. That was really his whole deal. And woe to us if we miss this and we allow our witness to continue to be eroded. So this brings me to what's next for me and my family. 
And it's really just continuing this conversation, continuing these discussions where we're pushed out of our comfort zone to try to learn more about other people and offer perspective. And as I step away from my role at Eastlake, Team McHale has two main things cooking. So first, I'm going to be taking the reins of Together in This, the nonprofit organization that we started last year. And it'll be an independent, sovereign 501c3. And uh, so I'm really excited about that. One of the things I'm most excited about is that I've given myself the title of president, because I can. Thank you. I know. Thank you. (laughs) I'm eligible. They told me I'm eligible this time, so that's good. Uh, The second thing is I'm going to continue investing in our neighborhood. My wife and I are really excited about what's happening in downtown Bothell and our neighborhood. Um, We've met a lot of great people, obviously. And I'm finally jumping into local politics. I'm going to be running for Bothell City Council later this year. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, actually, uh, this is one of the steps to doing that, is declaring my candidacy publicly. So I feel like Michael Scott up here. Like, I declare candidacy. I hope that... Oh, that check that one off to the list. Uh, but yeah, I want to be more engaged in community development. This is actually the thing that I've always been passionate about. I want to be engaged in conversations with leaders within our communities and with our churches. And again, keep uh, working to grow our neighborhood, which we're actively recruiting, by the way. If, uh, if you're like-minded and, and you're a cool person, you should come hang out with us in downtown Bothell. Um, and I'm really just excited to continue to cultivate relationships with my neighbors. It seems like the, I guess low-hanging fruit of what it means to follow Jesus. I want to be a safe place for people to talk to and not to feel awkward or uncomfortable when discussing race or oppression, how we go about making meaningful changes. I want to be a part of the solution. I can't gripe about the problem if I'm not willing to to jump in and get my, my hands dirty. I want to keep working with church leaders and community leaders who are interested in dialogue Um, And I've noticed this more and more, uh, the more interactions I've had, really ever since launching together in this back in June. Uh, Just recently, in the last couple weeks, I was down uh, in Denver with Denver Community Church. Uh, They recently just made a statement of full inclusion, and I got to spend some time with their leaders and their staff. Uh, And it was an incredible weekend. Actually, their lead pastor uh, sent us a message. Check this out. Two years ago, myself and a few of our staff members gathered with you on a Sunday Uh, and listened as Ryan shared of your leadership's decision to move toward full inclusion. Uh, I will never forget the the experience of being with you all on that weekend. Uh, That was the beauty and the grace and and the power um, was something that wasn't lost on us. And when we came back to Denver, we found that we weren't able to stop talking about what we experienced. And, And it galvanized something in me, and it gave me a resolve to say I've been, I've been silent, regrettably silent, for far too long regarding this important conversation. Uh, this led uh, our leadership to, to enter conversation about how we as a local church are going to respond and include the LGBT community. I can't say thank you enough to Ryan and to George um, for their wisdom on the journey, um, telling us what we shouldn't do for sure, and then telling us what we should do, and then uh, just their constant encouragement along the way. And I want you to know uh, that the experience we had with you, um, the love that we've seen in your congregation, uh, and, and along with the, the willingness to journey with us that we've seen and experienced from Ryan and George, led us as a faith community to a place where last weekend, January 22nd, we were able to share with our congregation of our leadership's decision for full inclusion for our LGBT brothers and sisters. 
And so from us here in Denver at Denver Community Church, to all of you, we say thank you for being an example and for walking a path and inviting us to walk it with you. Grace and peace. So along with uh, Denver Community Church, I've also had a chance recently to spend some time with Bayshore Church, um, their leader, Gary Hale. They made a statement of full inclusion uh, last year in June. Uh, They were actually a small, kind of newer church plant, and uh, they actually couldn't quite weather the storm of inclusion, and last week uh, was their their last week as a church. But when I was with both Bayshore and DCC, a couple things became really clear. Uh, One is that I'm super passionate about this work. I love having these conversations with these leaders. And two, that I actually didn't realize that I have some unique perspective and I have some things that that can be helpful in these conversations. Uh, Gary actually is going to be helping me uh, get together in this off the ground. And uh, him and I are both like really excited about what we can do with a little bit more bandwidth and energy behind uh, together in this, you know, since his church closed and uh, I quit my job. So we're excited (laughs) about that. Uh, but with the relaunch of Together in this, there's two main new emphasis points that I, that I want to point out. The first is that we're going to be more proactive in trying to engage in these conversations. Rather than sort of a, a resourcing place and storytelling place that's more passive, that's available for people if they want, uh, we want to actually actively go, talk to people. And we're going to start by kind of going through the backlog of emails and messages and, and communication that we've got from pastors all over the world um, that we just haven't had a chance to, to really dive in deeper with because this has kind of been a, a side project. Uh, from there, I'm planning on tapping into my network. I've met so many pastors and church leaders just in my time here at Eastlake with uh, just traveling the country and going to visit churches with Ryan. And uh, I'm going to lean into those relationships and, and try to engage in these conversations in as many ways as possible. Uh, I've already been having a, a lot of these conversations just in the last few weeks, and they've been, they've been really encouraging. And the second new emphasis is, I think, a critical one, and and it's clarity. So I want to talk about this a little bit. Um, Basically, what I've come to is this realization that I've misidentified the problem uh, of of what's happening sort of in the church world. See, before, I was highly critical and perhaps sometimes harsh towards churches that disagreed with my my newfound stance. Um, And I've, I've come to the realization that disagreement really isn't, isn't the problem at all. In fact, I have a newfound appreciation for pastors and church leaders who have their convictions and they state them clearly and they're okay with them, right? And this might sound something like, you know, we believe in a traditional view of scripture, marriage is between one man and one woman. Great. I can disagree with that, and I still do, just to be clear, um, without having to vilify them and without having to try to yank them to my position. That's actually unproductive. And so with this uh, new approach to clarity, what I've, what I've realized is that ambiguity is the real problem, in, in, uh, certainly in the evangelical church world. And what I mean by this is, here, here's what happens. Basically, there's this mantra that churches love, and it's that everybody's welcome, all are welcome, come as you are, right? And that's great. But what happens is people start getting invested in these churches, and they start getting comfortable, and they start meeting people, and they put their guard down, and they become vulnerable. And then... They approach their pastor and they ask a question like, hey, can I get baptized? Uh, Oh, by the way, I'm gay. And the pastor says, no. Well, wait, I thought everybody was welcome, right? And so those situations are actually avoidable if there's clarity up front, right? If you know right off the bat this is this church's position, then you're never going to put yourself in that situation. So the ambiguity, this bait and switch, this 
sort of false advertising uh, is the source of the problem. And I've been doing a lot of work over the last uh, few weeks to really try to unpack this. And it's something that we're going to really be focused on because it also allows us uh, entree into more conversations. People don't have to be um, defensive of like, I'm going to try to change your mind or whatever it is. And this it connects all the way back to, to what I've been talking about, what I've been sharing today. Is my, my theory really is, what if they don't know? What if, you know, no one's pointed out to them that, hey, were you aware that this ambiguity is actually really harmful, that people are getting hurt, you know? Uh, and I've had a front row seat to this dynamic, just being a part of this church for the last two years and having people who have been wounded by the church end up at Eastlake. And so my, my question, my, my, what I'm wondering is, do, do people know? Do people know that this is happening? And so I want to approach it with that posture as opposed to sort of going on this mission, trying to change people's mind and trying to yank them onto the journey. Um, so I want to assume the best. And, and I feel like I would be uh, rem reticent to not acknowledge and uh, apologize to church leaders and to pastors that I've been overly critical of in the past. I am sorry. I, I don't think that my posture has been helpful. I actually think that our differences um, can actually help us find unity, help us find common ground. So a few next steps uh, as we kind of get ready to wrap up here. I want to talk to uh, people of color, LGBTQ friends, marginalized people that uh, happen to be here or, or watching online. Here's kind of a homework assignment for you this week. I want you to reach out to a white friend of yours, and I want you to talk about your differences openly, because guess what? If they're your friend, they want to talk. They want to have this conversation. So acknowledge your differences. Make sure that they know that you're a safe place. Uh, help them avoid a situation like that I was in with Jeff by proactively communicating what you actually want to happen in those situations if you feel like that might be on the horizon. Be extra receptive to the people in your life who are sort of walking on eggshells, trying to make sure that they're being you know, sensitive. Notice those things and proactively approach them. Don't be afraid of the discomfort. We can't. We, we, we need to approach these things head on, especially right now. Remember that you don't know what it's like to be them any more than they know what it's like to be you. Know what your story is and share your story. Stay engaged. Uh, support this work. Engage with Together in This. Reach out to me. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to talk to you. Um, to my white friends, we need you now more than ever. That may sound simple. You may have heard that. But for marginalized people, for people of color, there's... There is a concern. There's an overriding concern. And uh, those of us that are immigrants, I think, especially, we've seen these warning signs before, right? For many of us, it's the reason that we immigrated. So please keep using your voice. Be as loud as you can. And help us elevate our voices whenever you get an opportunity. Support this work. Help us make progress. Help us figure out how to help churches uh, clarify where they're at, what their policies are and help us identify this as the actual problem, as opposed to pointing to the problem as simple disagreement. Church leaders, I'm going to talk to you for a quick second. I think you should invite me to your church. How's that? <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I don't care what you believe or if we disagree. I think that a plurality of voices and perspectives is helpful, and it's what we need right now. So bring me out, you know? Pay me your normal honorarium even. Um, <laughs> let me share my story. And uh, if you want to start demonstrating a commitment to diversity, um, you can start by elevating uh, voices that are different than yours. Secondly, uh, be clear about your policies. And again, this is, a, this is a new sort of revelation for me, so I don't expect people to be like, oh yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to do that. But 
Now is the time. I mean, if you look at even history of any major movement, you know, read Martin Luther King, um, read Holocaust survivor Ellie Weisel. They, they point to, even Jesus himself points to things like uh, warnings against being moderate, warnings against being lukewarm. The time is now to clarify. And for all of us, can we look for ways to actively acknowledge our differences for the sake of our unity? As we dismiss today, will you stand with me? East Lake, I love you. This place is so dear to me. I'm not going anywhere, by the way. I don't know if I said that. My wife and I are still going to be a part of this community, so you'll still see us on Sunday. But I hope you'll keep in touch. I hope you'll engage with together in this. I hope you'll help us get it off the ground and uh, help us get a, an early boost and get some momentum by giving, by volunteering, uh, but just by staying connected to us and, and supporting our work. And as you leave this place today, again, may we actively acknowledge our differences. May we go out of our way to press into the uncomfort so that we may be united. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Have a great week.